all, we're recording inside the Cohab Podcast Studio space under the Texas Street Bridge by the Red River in downtown Shreveport, Louisiana, and this is the 3180 Podcast. What is going on in the 318? What is our current identity? Shreveporters can make this place into the city we want it to be. It's time for Shreveport to make a 180. Every Thursday, we are having conversations about doing just that. We're talking to people who are making the difference in our city. I'm Josh Clayton. I'm Thomas Young. Welcome to the 3180 Podcast. Graham Walker of Fiberbond. Welcome to the 3180 Podcast. Thanks for having me. Tell us about yourself. Tell us uh, about Fiberbond and tell us, uh, let's start with you. Where did you Where did you grow up? Menden Boy? No, I grew up uh, in Taylor, which there's a fine distinction between the two. So well, tell Taylor us, is Bainville t- Parish, Menden's Webster. You know, okay. There's a great divide in between the two. Uh, so, you know, my family was from Taylor um, for... It's off the A to Taylor exit. That is correct. Yeah. Uh, so I grew up there, family, um, you know, grandfather's uh, best friends lived across the street from us, uh, next door neighbors. Yeah. Uh, town of 300 people and uh, family had been there for, has been there for since the uh, late 1840s. Really? So, yeah. You traced uh, that lineage all the way back then? Uh, so the family graveyard's not far from where we grew up. Wow. So you can go see it, yeah. There's wow. Wow. There are a bunch of penal convicts coming out of Georgia trying to find a uh, farm ground somewhere, and they got stuck there. So, is that right? That is right. Um, and then, so I yeah, grew up there, fourth of uh, five children, family all around, went to K through 12 in Ruston okay. at uh, Cedar Creek, and then ended up going to Suwannee from there. Met my wife, who happened to be from Shreveport, um, and then uh, moved back here in 2004. Uh, she was in med school here, so we chose here as home, so... And you came back in 04. What uh, what age were you guys that? Had she already gone through med school? No, or? she was a second year. I was, um, okay. so I, coming out of Swanee, I went to LSU for grad school. Then I moved to uh-huh. Birmingham uh, for work for a little bit and then came back here. Uh, did you go down to Baton Rouge for grad school? Yeah. Or? Okay, you did. LSU. Um, and then I moved to Birmingham in 03, came back here in 04. Working, I was working at the time in Birmingham. You had four major banks, four of the top 15 banks in the country were all in the same corner. Mm-hmm. Um and this was pre, obviously, the financial crisis where they all, except one, got bought, merged, d- dissolved, what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then I came back here and then started working at Fiberbond about a year later, later towards the very end of 2004. Okay. Uh, so that, uh, I've been here since. What's your education background? What you? What kind of degree did you get at Sewanee? I got a liberal arts history. So it's, you know, 1,300 students, liberal arts college owned by the Episcopal Church. Uh, so I got a history degree. It's on, then, top, it's on top of a mountain in Tennessee, right? On top of a mountain in Tennessee. Beautiful place. Yeah, a good buddy of mine went yeah. there. He, oh, yeah. uh, he he still goes back for football games, and he's very fond of Sewanee. It, uh, it, it indoctrinates people, I'm afraid. So I, I guess so. So uh, um, you get an MBA? Yeah, I did. Yeah, uh-huh. so I, I was uh, the only person with a liberal arts background in a uh, class full of accounting majors mm-hmm. and finance majors, and uh, that actually ended up being very, very helpful. Why? So, Why was that helpful? Because uh, my entire education was about writing and thinking through problems and not necessarily having the formula set out in front of you. So I think, uh, you know, they're all kind of people trying to, especially, you know, like you look at, at what, you know, a Washington Lee or a Swanee calls now, it's crazy. But um, the value of that education, I think, is is pretty meaningful. Um, I mean, I I was approaching stuff uh, in, a, in my grad school curriculum for the first time, whereas, and I knew nothing coming in. I mean, I want to say nothing, absolutely nothing. Uh, 
and so just having you know a background where you know, like intellectual curiosity and just trying to figure things out on a on a macro level was helpful. And so, I mean, I still uh, I make that argument to people today. I'm I'm in a business that's heavily heavily focused on engineering uh, and manufacturing, and having no background uh, in engineering is actually an asset because you approach problems very differently. How how big was your average class size at Sewanee? Uh, probably the biggest class was 40 people, something like that. That was an intro biology as a freshman. Uh, smallest would have been five. So, I mean, I had, I had classes, you know, you're in the middle of nowhere in a mountain, right? Um, so, would not be uncommon to have classes in a professor's home, have drinks with your professors, that kind of thing. It was a very, there was not a lot of distinction sometimes between <laughs> students and faculty. So Yeah, that in speaking with my buddy that went to Sewanee, I know it's a completely different world than going to undergrad at LSU. Yeah. It, it is. Uh, yeah. I, I, I didn't think that through when I was 17 or 18. There's I not, to a go, lot of, not a lot of going to the prof's house <laughs> yeah, no, like, no, you couldn't see. <laughs> you, needed binoculars. LSU, you, you needed binoculars to see the professor from the back row. Like, you know, there was like 250 kids in a class if you were taking – freshman survey courses for your prereqs or whatever. But, um, yeah, the, I, I didn't realize that, that that education appealed to me until I was long done with my education. Long past, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. when you're 30 and you look back and you say, well, I really could have benefited from something like that. Um, made a pay, maybe would have paid more attention. But um, so you – did you ever have intention of coming back to Fiber Bond? Or yeah, did, I didn't know. Um, I mean, so – Fiberbond was a business that was, uh, there were three original partners. My dad was one of them. He had been third generation in a family business that had sold uh, in 1980. And then and he was, he would have been what, 38 years old when it sold. What, what was that family business? It was a forest products business called Woodard Walker. Okay. Um, so they were based in Taylor. I had a sawmill there that had been just recently converted to a big plywood mill. So back in, back in the early 80s or 1980, he was about 38 years old. Yep. And he'd sold out of the for the family business. The, whole, sold. the whole company sold. Sold to what is now Warehouser. Okay. And uh, so he, take us through that process to the extent that you know it. He and two partners start a company called Fiberbond. They actually invested in a business in West. He invested in a business in West Shreveport. Um, figured out pretty quickly that it was not uh, financially solvent. Um, ended up coming in, and I mean everything that he had coming out of this this sale, which was. Enough money to have some money, but not enough to live on for the rest of your life. But he put it all, you know, with five kids, put it all into the small business. Moved it to Bozier for a year, then moved it to uh, to Minden. What was it called uh, when he invested in it? Uh, I am drawing a blank okay. on that. Right. But um, did he was he still with the partners when they moved it from West Shreveport to Bozier, then to Minden? So he brought the partners in, in I believe, in '83 when they moved to Minden. Uh, oh, okay. So he was he was yeah. the only guy in 1980. He was the only guy. All right. And then brought in uh, someone with more of a sales background than someone with an operations background. Pretty quickly narrowed down to two partners, uh, he and one other. What was uh, the impetus for the move east? Uh, they needed space. They had they need, needed available uh, people. Okay. And, and quite frankly, I think it was closer uh, oh, to yeah. home for him, so sure. it was easier. Sure, um, So he locates it in Minden. Yeah, locates it in Minden, actually at an old JV site between his family business and uh, at the time Willamette. Uh, so it was, an, it was a sawmill that uh, had been a family JV, and they'd abandoned that site sometime shortly after the acquisition, I guess, in 1980. Uh, so the space was available. He comes in and, and puts his business in it, uh, retrofits the facility. And then, you know, started with 12 employees, and they happened to time it right. So the initial business was building these small uh, huts, like telephony huts for the railroad. So Sprint 
would have been an early customer when they were still kind of a railroad company. And uh, happened to time it right for cellular. So cellular pops in the mid-1980s. This company is sitting here with the ability to build uh, kind of a prefab concept where you're not having to do all this in site. So if you look at the way was, it, was it a prefab concept back in the railroad days as well? Yeah, it was. Because, I mean, so, these are remote locations. So okay. the idea of getting guys to come out, I mean, it's hard enough to get guys to my house in Shreveport, much less, you know, sure. somewhere at uh, a geographical coordinate. So it, it's just much more cost-effective <laughs> yeah, for the railroad sure. company to buy the box that you yeah, guys have made in Minden. Correct. So um, we got this background a couple of weeks ago. Not not to this level of detail, but we got a little bit of this background a couple of weeks ago uh, when we came out to Minden and talked to you. Yeah. But... Um, the, he's got 12 guys, and he's early 80s, 1983-ish. He's in Minden. He's down to about one or two partners. At One partner? Uh, one partner, yeah. And um, is your dad the engineering guy or the sales guy? Which? Mm. So my dad is the guy who, when he gave me stereo equipment in uh, 2001, I got the full volume of notes on so legal yellow pad, <laughs> tiny handwritten letters. I listened to the Edgar Winter group uh, playing this song with these cables and this configuration. I mean, he's the, he's the technical, okay. uh, deep, deep technical guy. So they're making... More uh, operations focused, yeah. They're making these little huts and for, for railroads. Let's, let's start there. Is, is it called Fiber Bond yet? Uh, would have been in 1982, at the end of 82, yes. Why, why is it called Fiber Bond and why is it spelled uh, like it's Fibre Funky, bond? yeah. Uh, so the company was by... It was a... The, what the product was made of was glass fiber reinforced concrete. So if you think of normal, like go out to a road that's being poured, you got steel rebar in there and it's, you know, aggregates and all that and, and normal concrete like you'd put in a driveway. Instead, uh, and it's still, you still see it in occasional kind of applications, but glass fiber reinforced concrete, GFRC, was you had shattered glass, essentially. It, it stranded fiberglass that... Uh, the strands of that fiber then orient themselves in a kind of a complex way. It makes a very strong structure. So glass fiber reinforced. No steel. Okay. Is, yeah. So the fiber was sourced from Nippon glass out of Japan. Okay. Uh, they spelled it fiber, F-I-B-R-E. Okay. Hence the name. Uh, so fiber bond. Yeah. So okay. something that has absolutely no application to what we build today. Okay. Yet, uh, you know, we, what we found, we actually looked at doing a name change about oh, a decade ago, maybe more. But... Um, we had a name within the marketplace that we served. So, you know, kind of like why is Kleenex, Kleenex called Kleenex? It doesn't matter at this point, right? So uh, we have stuck with the name. Okay. So so, um, so you're, making the, you're making the huts for the, for the railroads. And what, what's in the huts? Uh, it would be switching equipment. It would be communications equipment. Kind of in that application, pretty basic stuff. Nothing terribly complicated. Okay, but they were doing okay. Yeah, they're doing okay. They're making a go of it. Have you ever heard from your dad at what point they said, well, cellular phones, let's do that too? Uh, it would have been 1985, 86, somewhere in that time frame. Did so, Sprint come to them, or did they? No, so they had, he had Sprint as a, as a legacy customer from the okay. old business. and mm-hmm. uh, But then when, when cellular hit, you know, we're talking about you know, the massive bag phones and that kind of thing. Yeah, to um, any millennials listening, this has yeah, this nothing. Has no relevance <laughs> to anything you understand. Uh, the phone still had cords. They just yeah, were attached yeah. to your car. I mean, this was before the little pigtail antenna coming off the side of your window in yeah. your vehicle. Um, so it was a very niche kind of application. No one would expect, obviously, a $2,000 bag phone would have a mass market. Um, but they started then doing, you know, there were some public safety applications. 
Um, you know, if you've got a, if the Louisiana State Troopers have a uh, communications network, that infrastructure was something they could build. So they started branching out into uh, more wireless or microwave type applications at that point. And then, uh, you know, you think about that point, 300 companies uh, had kind of local licenses mm-hmm. and they were all trying to build out a cell network. Um, and then, you know, within 20, within 15 years, that essentially became, let's call it three companies. Uh, between AT&T, Singular, Bell South, all that mix that became AT&T today, Verizon, and Sprint. So, so how did how did boxes that went on railroads that held switching equipment turn into boxes? Uh, what do they hold? You know, by the mid to late eighties, what, what do they hold and where are they located? Really, are, are they the same thing? Similar stuff. Yeah, it was really we, we did not have a major shift in what we built. For a, almost 30 years. I mean, really, we, we were going, I came to the business in 04, and we were still building a product that would have looked very similar to what somebody was buying in the late 1980s. Okay. So uh, it was just at a different scale and a different volume. What do they look like? Uh, they look like a brown concrete washed aggregate building sitting in the middle of a cow pasture with uh, every redneck like me trying to shoot them. All so, right. Are they, are they six feet tall or 10 feet tall? Yeah, 10 or? feet tall. 12 feet wide, 30 feet long. Something okay. Like that. All right. So. And they're housing the technology that's that needs to be temperature controlled. Yeah, and, absolutely. And power. And, and, yeah. you know, if you think about kind of a, a critical network and it really kind of touches anything that we build today, you've got two main things you're trying to protect against. Uh, heat, moisture, um, and then trying to protect that equipment from overall physical damage, right? So... Um, it would look very similar today if we were building and we do still a little bit of telecom work um, not nearly I mean it's a a pretty small fraction of our business but that product still looks pretty similar to what we did then so we just had a underlying that though we had a skill set we look I mean quite frankly we were forced with uh, we had to evolve or die and we you know when you're in the same market for a long time you tell yourself all right yeah that that death thing's never really going to happen you know it's always going to be there and um, had we not confronted the reality of what death was going to look like uh, about six years ago, uh, I don't think we'd be, I tell people, we'd be Rocky Balboa standing around a 55-gallon drum uh, with his friends in the neighborhood, uh, you know, got a bonfire going and warming his hands. <laughs> I mean, there'd be nothing going. Um, well, take the, mar- us, the market changed for us. Well, take us through the 90s. I mean, was it was that just the build-out of the cell? Yeah, build-out of the cell network. Yeah. Uh, there was a partnership divorce between my dad and his partner. Uh, and so, like, wherever there's a cell tower out in the wilderness yeah. or wherever, there's a box at the bottom of it. Typically, yeah. And that's what, and, and you could buy that box from Fiberbond. And it houses, like Thomas said, the critical infrastructure at the base of that tower. Yep. And it has to be uh, cooled, I guess, because it gets hot in there. It has to be protected from the elements, so that's what it's you gotta guys. Got to be grounded. Do. I mean, it's got to be you know protect against lightning, those kind of things. But okay. So during this, I mean, there was a period of time when there wasn't cell towers. Yeah. You know, well, there were not cell towers all over the country. So, and at some point there are now. Like you can get, uh, you know, I've gotten uh, cell coverage in the middle of absolute nowhere. Um, gotten cell coverage in you know South American rainforest. It's everywhere, and it didn't exist twenty years ago. But that's what that was being built in Minden. And there, you know, or at least the boxes at the bottom of the tower. Largely, and, yeah. And how many employees did Fiberbond have through that period of time in the 90s? Oh, in the 90s, probably somewhere around three, 400, something like that. Wow. Yeah. And okay. they bought a facility in California um, near San Francisco that we were chasing a build out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then got up to somewhere in the range of 900 employees uh, in late 2000. And then, you know, 
dot-com, 9-11 hits. And you really what happened there was you had a major consolidation in the market because mm-hmm. you, you still, if you go back and look, I mean, there, it was not proven that there was a real business model on the sell side for a mo- or mobile device side. And for Ticket Verizon, that was a landline company and mm-hmm. still is to some degree. I mean, whether it's fiber or whether it's uh, a landline connection. But you, know, you had the choice, if you're those guys, you had the choice to sit there and uh, just rake in the cash off of the legacy network that you've got, or can you adapt and move forward into the sell piece, which required a lot of CapEx and yeah. you know, a lot of investment. So um, the consolidation that occurred from 01 to 04, it was painful for us just because you know, our work dropped in half. But um, in the end, what came out of that were two very strong players. I would not count Sprint in that, that mix, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, Verizon AT&T that had – a lot of band, a lot of bandwidth to go out there, and, and mm-hmm. really, then when you have the iPhone come out in 07, they supply the network behind that. So it's an interesting, interesting market. So you came on board, you said in 04, 05, yep, 04, yeah. And uh, you, I mean, you're a young guy now, so you you were 16 years younger than you are now. So you were like 30. Something. I, so yeah, I'm 40 now. I was 26. Oh wow, like that yeah. So you've got your MBA, you've got your undergrad, and know nothing, yeah, and know absolutely nothing, and then you you. Um, you're back in Shreveport. Your wife's in med school. She is. And Was. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you're 26 years old or whatever, and, and, and you go to work for dad? Or did you try to bank here or do something else? Yeah, so now I'm transferred back here with the same bank for about, oh, maybe a year or something like that. Yeah. And then, um, so the business, Fiberbond had always had, we had a plant in California. Uh, we had, you know, I would just say a lot of things that weren't making the company money. Okay. And, you know, went through a pretty nasty period. So uh, when I came in, it was, uh, there was a, my dad was uh, 64. He was on the verge of retirement. Um, or would have been 62. And was looking for the people that would be able to give him, I would say, the right advice around, you know, this thing that you, you really believe in, it's got to go. You know, or you've got to make some hard choices in order to, to sustain the business, right? I mean, because there's an obligation uh Forget who owns it or forget the ownership structure. You've got an obligation to the employees mm-hmm. to make the right decisions to be there for the long term. Mm-hmm. And the company's future was very much in peril. So that meant coming in and selling a bunch of stuff, trying to get the balance sheet right, trying to get um, get repositioned to be, you know, to, to have some strength. And uh, so I came in. I had a brother that was in the business with me. And and so that we were pretty effective at getting some, some quick, you know, 12 to 24-month kind of plans executed. And then my dad retired fully in 2006. Why, well, maybe he's just a, uh, a better person than most, but why was your dad receptive to two sons' suggestions? or to, to why, why did he listen to you guys? Yeah, so, I mean, he, he, he's a unique uh, guy who founded a business, I would say, in that he was, uh, he was able to, when he left it, he left. I mean, he, he, he did not sit there, and, and thankfully, I mean, it's something I very much appreciate, and I uh, hope that I can duplicate one day, though I'm not sure I can, when he left, he didn't come back and second guess. I mm-hmm. mean, it was he very much believed in what we could do, and um, that seems to be a very uh, <laughs> turning a business over to your children seems to be theoretically very easy and practically, practically damn near impossible. impossible. Yeah. And there's a whole like industry of like therapists that that's what <laughs> they do. Yeah. They're more in the like yeah. Dallas, Fort Worth, larger market area, but yeah. like. I know some people that were like, no, I had to go to learn how to like say, 
get out. Like you said you were going. Either if you're coming back, take it and what run. Are, what are the rules of engagement? Yeah. Absolutely. Like and and that's that can be it can be very stressful on both both parts. Yeah, I mean, this is, is like the first story I've ever heard where it was a seemingly as maybe yeah, not, the, like, the word smooth probably isn't correct, but a tra- a real transition. Well, I think yeah, you, no, you, it, the it, way it really you described was. it was he handed you the keys and he's like, I'm going to the house. Like, <laughs> yeah, so feel Jimmy free to Campbell call. Who was a guest of yours, yeah. his father, Jim and my dad are friends. And, uh, you know, Jim would always say, hey, Claude, he just went home and he's, <laughs> Sitting there picking weeds out of the yard, eating a bologna sandwich every day. And it's like, yeah, that's, you know, a hell of a life. That's is he enjoying good. retirement? Yeah, he is. He's busier than ever. So, Well, that's that's awesome. So I, I really, um, have, have either of you seen Euro Dreams of Sushi? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a documentary, and it's a, it, it an interesting father-son relationship uh, where, the, where the guy won't hand over the sushi business. I mean, his son's 60, and he's just now allowed to make the rice. Yeah, like he was, <laughs> or the HBO series Secession. I mean, the same oh, thing. I need to check yeah. that out. Well, yeah. that, all right, so your brother is older than you. Yeah, yeah so I've got three older brothers. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, the the keys are handed over, and and there was was there a grooming period of like two or three years of following in dad's footsteps and working at the business? No, there's or? really no time for it. So, <laughs> no, I mean, it was it was uh, that was that would have been a luxury. So. so, what did you inherit? I mean, what did you? walk into and, and what type of, what did you, what changes did you make to bring it forth into where we are now? Yeah. So, um, I would say there was some, there was an incredible foundation to build on. And when I say that, I mean, just in terms of the people. So the business had, uh, we had a catastrophic fire in 1998, a plant burned to the ground. I mean, uh, went up on a Sunday night, total devastation. Um, mm-hmm. Now we had a plant in California that we could source some production out to, but uh, you know, people came to work on them. And mm-hmm. there are a lot of people that were that are still there that would tell you this. People came to work on, and they actually showed up that night to watch the fire. You know, people uh, oh, kind of you know massed together there, just knowing it was over. And yeah, so my dad is uh, he's got incredible optimism. And that's a great thing. And it can also, you know, be to your detriment too, but it, he's an incredible optimist. And so he showed up the next day, you know, I had a company wide meeting as, you know, the, the smoke still coming up from the fire. And, you know, it's, it's very clear. We're going to, the company will still be there. We're going to rebuild. And, you know, that for me is, that would have been a major gut check just because uh, there, there was insurance money coming in. You could have, if ever there was a time to fold, that would have been the time to fold. And, and walk away. But, you know, really, he's got uh, a tremendous sense of obligation to the people that got him to that point. And, and by that, I don't mean, you know, the guy sitting next to him in board meetings. I'm talking about the guy that, uh, you know, came there as a 19-year-old kid who is working every day on the plant floor. I mean, there's a tr- he's got a, he still has a tremendous rapport with those folks. And so, you know, last it would have been September the 20th of uh, 2018, with the twentieth anniversary, we have uh, a big beam that you know we painted kind of our fiber bond blue color, and then everybody that was uh, still an employee in two thousand eighteen that had been there for the fire, which was seventy five people, uh, twenty years later got up in a man lift and signed the beam. Uh-huh. You know, he and he happened to show up for it. I had uh, some some prospective customers in town, and they're seeing this. You know, people still kind of you know, huddled up, crying, you know, just reliving the memories, and. Uh, so that foundation, you know, it, it, it's applicable to Shreveport to kind of in this area at a broader level, but there were tremendous people in place. 
And so in 2014, actually late 13, we decided, all right, you can see we were the biggest year ever in 2013. You know, we were absolutely uh, trying to figure out how to add capacity mm-hmm. in our telecom market, but that's two customers mm-hmm. at that point. And so we're running, you know, on one hand as, as fast as we can. And on the other side, we're saying, this is about to end. We have to exit quick and we got to come up with something else. So uh, we decided to get into what we now we call our power business. And very different product, very different uh, skill set that's required, but the same kind of basic things that got us where we were applied perfectly. We were always good at building things at scale. So that means, you know, taking a really complicated product and building it the same way multiple times. Mm-hmm. And it may be five times, it may be 200. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the process you have to put in place to be able to achieve that uh, transferred perfectly over this new market. Even though we didn't expect that uh, we would find something that had these kind of large batches of, I would say, of, 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 of orders. We, it was a much more custom kind of industrial-based petrochem, oil and gas mm-hmm. uh, was the intent. But what happened, and we got in there and we, we you know, had to really bulk up our engineer. Actually, we had to totally restructure everything inside the company. <laughs> but, uh, what made you think this would work? Uh, we didn't have a choice. I mean, we we thought that, all right, we've got to do something else. We had tried some other things. We had tried building uh, concrete jail cells and concrete classrooms. And, you know, th- there was some applicability for that product. And there was some market for that product. But so you all tested some waters elsewhere. Yeah, no, we, th- we did this back into the 90s. There was always the intent, well, we got to diversify. We have to diversify. Yeah. But if you look at it, what we diversified into was a very heavy, very low value add product that you're going to put on the back of a truck and incur a lot of freight costs. There's not enough value add to really offset the freight. Okay. And so we beat our head against a wall and we did some projects in California and some projects in Texas, but it was intermittent. It was never really uh, at scale. And was, was there any, uh, was there anything you studied getting your MBA? Were there any case studies of other retooling of manufacturing outfits that gave you inspiration or to do this or? No. <laughs> Two no. years at LSU. Uh, did, did, did you get any? This was insight? necessity. No, I mean, look, there were, there were plenty of things that were useful in my MBA. Yeah, that, sure. There, there was nothing to prepare me for that. Okay, I just didn't uh, know if you. Okay, I'm so just, yeah, it it, uh, it would be nice if there were, and I'm sure you know there there. Yeah, I'm waiting for the story. Some, there, of, no, I some, read a story about this other company one time. No, that I mean, did there's this, some interesting but, things no. that you know the companies that we deal with now that I think are interesting in the parallels there, but. Okay. Um, I mean, there's, there's you no weren't following. Manual, there's no. You weren't following a blueprint. No, we were following an outline. Okay. I mean, so uh, hired a couple of people that came out of a competitor in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Okay. Um, and I was familiar with that business a little bit okay. through kind of some historical interaction with them, and um, but we got into it. You know, and said, all right, we got a couple of people here, and we're going to pair a couple of our really very best people from from Fiberbond. We're going to put them all together and. We're going to start trying to figure out where we go. Okay, and so that um, that was very quickly figuring out. We had to totally change our engineering process. So we would have had three, something like that, maybe four at sometimes enge- degreed engineers on staff, and then we would have drafters that were you know taking a, a concept and drawing it out in two D flat drawings, and mm-hmm. then we'd be giving that to a, a guy on the shop floor, and that's what they build. So. That worked okay for telecom because it was a fairly static product. I mean, while there are different configurations, you know, what we're building looked 
pretty similar. Mm-hmm. When you're building for two customers, right, there's some standards inside of those customers that you you inherently know. I mean, you learn and, and guys pick that up and uh, they take that in. In this case, every project was going to be different. Every project was far more complex electrically um, and mechanically. So we had to get really good at engineering. So, you know, today we're about 25 degree engineers, primarily coming out of tech. And then we've got 40 guys in India that are all degreed engineers, but they're all modeling. So everything we're doing is now in 3D because that gives you so much power around what, what you can build. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the only way you, you've got to over-engineer it to be able to build it at scale. Build well, a lot of different things coming through at scale. You can engineer it in the 3D model and yeah. then stress test it theoretically in that model without having to do like, let's see what the weight, like, you know, those numbers, yeah. like it's so gotten if, to that point. Yeah, we're, we're on some projects now where you'll have uh, what we would call a building, uh, but that's going to be 240 feet by 60 feet wide. So that's from a manufacturing standpoint, that may be uh, 10 components, like 10 things that are 16 by 60, something along that, that, that range. And which are massive, by the way, I mean, that's, that's, you're talking 150,000 pounds. So it's great that you can build one of those 10 things, but unless you can build them all 10 together as a single unit and from an engineering standpoint in a model, and you can see your interferences because you may have something like that's going to have, uh, let's call it 10 miles of electrical cable in it. And so if you don't have that engineered properly, when you go to build it and then you go to fit it up in the field, I mean, you're going to be off and you're going to, you're going to, you're going to die on a nasty project that way. So uh, we have to really over overemphasize the engineering up front, and you know it's we're dealing with with some pretty interesting companies there that uh, each have their own batch of four hundred engineers that are all you know bright and smart and know what they want. So uh, very specific. What are your uh, what, what what software are you using to do that, or is there Solid, uh, software called SolidWorks? Yeah, and are they trained up out of tech to do that? When they yeah, they are. Up? I mean, so you know, my uh, I remember we have we have this. Incredibly bright, great guy, Nigerian-born uh, electrical engineer who went to tech, uh, named Ike Wobo, and, and uh, Ike was the first engineer that came over onto the power side for us. Um, and he was teamed up with a, a project manager named Tim Clifton, who's you know Tim's from Sarepta, Ike's from Lagos, Nigeria. So uh, you know, instant cultural fit. <laughs> and but great guys, good friends, and and, and just incredible people. So. Um, when I was previously working and he'd been with us for uh, eight years prior to that, Ike was a really smart electrical engineer who was drafting all the time. So 90% of his work and time is spent with his fingers instead of his brain. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not to denigrate a drafting skill set in any way, but here's a guy who, you know, can stand with any electrical engineer in the country and yet we're asking him to do production drawings. That mm-hmm. doesn't work. Instead, now, you know, what we'll do is take that engineer He's not drafting. He's not working at SolidWorks, but he is. He's outlining design intent. He's interfacing with a customer a lot. He's interfacing with consulting engineers. He's coming up with with what we're going to build, but not actually having to draw out the drawings himself. So he's he now has the ability to edit, not create, and or he creates a concept, then he edits what's going to go into production. So far more effective use of his time. So. This is all nerdy stuff. Sorry. No, no, no. We, we, we like we like to get into the. We, we don't, you know, with our 150 listeners, um, which I think is the most we've ever had on any episode. We're not we're not concerned. We we actually enjoy this. So, you mentioned this guy's interfacing with a customer. You're not building boxes for railroads anymore. No. What, well, actually, 
We do do a few. Well, but okay, but that's not the but that's not that's the lion's share. Which no. you know, so no. so give us an example insofar as you can actually. Yeah, I, I know some of this stuff is privileged, yeah. but if you know, what are you doing now? What what customer is he working with, and what does that customer want built? And then what you mentioned these boxes that you're building are a lot more complicated. Some of them seem to be larger. You said 250 by 60. Yeah. So we would have always thought. Five, six years ago, you would have asked somebody, anybody inside the company, what do we do? We build concrete boxes for telecom. That would have been the exact answer everybody would have given you. Um, Today, the answer would be, we are a pretty sophisticated electrical and mechanical integrator. And we build a box in order to get to the electrical and mechanical value. So if you think about, uh, you know, I mentioned those earlier diversifications efforts. We're building a big, heavy concrete box and doing as little to it as possible and shipping it. All right. Now... The box is a necessary evil. It, can, it doesn't have to be a box. It can be a, you know, a variety of different things. But whatever it is that gets us to the, that electrical and mechanical integration value, because if you look at nationally, where are the skill sets lacking? Where the, where's the labor shortage? It's construction trade, higher end, electrical especially. And so if you go into the Gulf Coast and, and look at the petrochem work going on there, that's a shortage. If you go into any of the hot data center markets, it's electrical. Um, so we can now... We can incur that freight penalty uh, very easily because we're offsetting, you know, the, the you do the comparison of site electrical labor versus what we do. It, it, it bends in our favor every time. Yeah. Well, and, and your your product costs and what you can charge for it because it's full of electrical so engineering we, we, work. We, yeah, it we makes make, up for the fact that you ship it down there. So we can make a living now as opposed to making a living for the freight companies. Gotcha. Okay. okay. So, uh, and, 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 you know, so pet, Petrochem, yeah. Petrochem calls you guys and says, hey, this is what we need. Yeah. And, and you, you mentioned... The, so what what exactly are you doing for? I mean, can you can you tell us a little more detail? I mean, you got a lawyer brain in here, so I'm uh, I want you to tell a four year old what you're yeah. yeah. uh, <laughs> what you're doing. So let's take the Petrochem side, or let's yeah. say Petrochem midstream, something like that. Okay. So in that case, if you're a large LNG plant on the Gulf Coast, okay. liquefied uh, natural gas. Yep, uh, liquefied natural gas. You know, the order in order to process that it goes. There's a ton of electrical equipment that. Uh, that goes into stabilizing power and, and protecting, uh, from a life safety standpoint, protecting the people there. Um, so you think of high voltage power coming in, how does that get down to the equipment level? So now we'll take you know, a lot of uh, switchgear, variable frequency drives, batteries, um, you name it. Uh, this equipment that's powering these facilities typically gets put inside of something that's built off-site. And okay. so we would build that. Some competitors in Houston would build that or competitors in Singapore would build that. Um, on the data center side, uh, it would be you know, data centers, a, a warehouse full of IT racks that are burning a, a ton of energy, mm-hmm. giving off a ton of heat mm-hmm. and they need to be cool and they need steady power. So if you look at where data center activity is, is heavy, uh, it's in areas that have cheap power and mm-hmm. they've got good fiber and they've got uh, a pretty good climate. So mm-hmm. uh, we'll then build both uh, a primary electrical, when I say primary, you know, the utility source coming in, okay. gets stepped down. Gets into step, yeah, a from series, a high voltage down to a yeah, lower voltage. Down to, okay. to 480 or something like that. Yeah. And uh, so the, all that electrical equipment that controls the steady output of power or input of power rather into that data center um, is something that we would we would take. We'll bring that equipment in. We'll prefabricate it, and then we'll do all the electrical connection there because that market is about scale and speed. And if you can build it fast, uh, that saves a lot of dollars on site and lets you also protect if if um, 
you know, ABC company that's out there trying to build these things. I, if I can build it in a shorter duration, then, you know, I hold my capital a little bit longer. I'm more careful in how I deploy it, and I don't, I don't take a penalty for that. I can still build fast. Um, and then we'll also do backup. We bought a company up in Illinois uh, in 2015 that was in bank, actually bought the assets out of bankruptcy. Uh, and they were doing a lot of work with one of the large data center companies. And um, so we, you know, had that facility, actually we closed it last year, but we brought it to Minden and brought that product to Minden at the very end of 2017. Um, just because we have the ability, you know, where we were in Illinois near Peoria, which is Kat and Komatsu, you know, heavy industrial territory, um, we could build it better here. And we could build it at a better scale. We could get our engineers into it and really, really refine the product. But if you look at a data center, that's going to have a row of about, you know, could be 10, could be 40 of these uh, large uh, steel buildings mm -hmm. that have got uh, typically something like a 3,000 kW locomotive engine type uh, diesel generator there. So, uh, you know, anything that really powers up mission critical equipment and and when i say that it's you know that can be again a data center that could be a still some telecom work but things that uh, and petrochem things that cannot go down yeah that stuff that has to be up 24 7 365 Absolutely. no excuses reliability like, yeah and and they've got engineers that work for these petrochem companies and they've sure. got engineers that work for the data center companies but they their talents are being used towards making better data centers and making better petrochem or, yeah i mean they, they've got um i'm take microsoft for instance i mean they've got absolutely fascinating business story of what's going on there in the past six years but they've got really smart people that are worried about how to build out this massive network and then they hire a contractor an engineer and they you know when they're building their data centers um, they've got people that are dedicated to that but where we come in is we're we're good on the engineering side as it relates to getting something built mm -hmm. you know so ABC customer may have a very specific design that they want around what electrical configuration they have, let's say, how they want to back up their power, those kind of things. But when it comes to building that, we're going to be the best at it. Wow. I, you know, okay. We take their concept and make it manufacturable at scale. So we, we're constantly flexible. We don't care what equipment there is. We don't care. They have that like 3D model figure out this is how we need it to work. But we don't know how we yeah, don't they, know they how have, to put it together uh, in you know, actual. Here's my utility source coming in, and here's what I'm going to do with a transformer, and here's what I'm going to do with the backup UPS system, and they have kind of the major concepts there. But in terms of getting those, you know, from paper to yeah, manufactured, built, yeah, yeah, that's put into put into a, a skill set yeah. there that that is unique. They send you guys a formula, like a, <laughs> some mathematical. They give, formula. Us, they give us a, an outline of what they yeah. want and tell us what gear they're going to send us, and we take it from there. That wow! So, how many employees do you guys have now? Uh, right now, we're about six hundred and seventy-five. Six hundred seventy-five employees. It's a, a little miniature city out there that uh, <laughs> that Thomas and I drove into. With the yeah. they've got the uh, the security guard check box, and um, when we showed up and said we're here to see Graham, uh, they said who? Yeah, well, <laughs> I was like, well, there's no way you can just tell him we're here to see Graham. Like, Don't we have to meet somebody to meet somebody? And he said, no, and he's like, sent you a text. And okay, okay well, you know, he's going to be a little bit. But but yeah, beautiful facility out there. And uh, we had to go to three different white buildings before we figured out what the White House was. But yeah. it was nice to meet you there. And uh, beautiful. I've always liked the, the central part of Louisiana, like, you know, you mentioned you were born and uh, raised in Taylor. 
But there's an element of Arkansas that kind of comes down to the middle north part of Louisiana. It's hilly. Yeah, sure. It's, it really, right, you know, Claiburn Parish, all that. Piney Woods, but Absolutely. it's very hilly uh, compared to the flatlands of, you know, Shreveport, Bossier, and East Texas. And I'm, I think it's a real – I like Minden. I spent a lot of time in that courthouse over there, tried a case over there, and uh, and I think it's a beautiful part of the world. So um, you got a good thing going over there. I wanted yeah. to ask, because we were talking about – because you have 600 people there – but the, in your transition, this is something Patrick was, I don't remember if you were there, talking about um, taking guys that you've had, yeah. you know, that are there doing one thing and then retraining them. And that's something you did locally, like with the help of, was it tech or yeah, so, um, or Specifically, it's the Northwest Louisiana Technical Community College. Now, okay, I okay. Um, they have a Minden branch, and so we've done some training with them. You know, I liken it to uh, we were the Titanic. We had hit the iceberg, and we have now for five years been bailing guys out in lifeboats 20 at a time. And thankfully now we've well, we've got a new boat. We're headed to New York. You know, that, yeah. uh, but it, it was that kind of urgency around the transition. And that's that's a the program that was set up is essentially like you go to work and then and then at some point after work you go and it's like hey what you're doing now you're doing task ABC yep just do ABC but with this like and then that takes your same person yeah, someone to me we have is what we've always done right I mean that, that right. just doesn't work so and, you know you take a guy who was casting concrete and we have a, a guy Terry Jones is a very skilled electrician he started off casting concrete when he started 20 years ago so yeah, the, if we can find somebody that can show up and they care and they can pass a drug test, uh, we can work with that. We'll get the skills, you know. Well, there. and that's also like you know, this is something uh, you you know, like you know that guy. Yeah. Like you you can say, hey, yeah, that's sort of the difference between you have six hundred family members essentially, and that's part of in many conversations I've had with, you know family business owners and i think we talked about this yeah it's like there is a certain amount of like we're always going to be able to beat the big you know big company because they're they're looking at a spreadsheet and trying to figure out how to make a stockholder happy and and we're here making sure you know we're still looking at the spreadsheet but we're doing it with our eyes on on like taking the time to go wait a minute this guy cast concrete, we, he could do, we could make him an electrician. We could make him like, he can do all of this stuff as well. Let's just, let's just show him, show him where those tools are. Yeah. So we, I would say this, you know, in 2014, if you looked at our, our income statement, uh, we had roughly 90% of our revenue coming from three companies. Those same three companies in 2019 were 1.6% of our revenue. So we've been through a massive 180 shift in terms of what we do. Um, that would not have been possible without a team. And I get, you know, talking about the foundation earlier, you know, and something like the fire where you, you really galvanize the culture. Um, without that as a foundation to build upon, I don't think we could, we could have really made that shift. I mean, because that, you know, that's threatening to people. It's, it's, uh, it was threatening to me. But when you have to go through and say, you know, I, look, I know you've been doing this, but you're about to do something totally different. And just trust me, you can do it. Uh, that requires a lot of faith from people. And, you know, without that, we would not have made it. And then, you know, now, so we're, we're in a cycle right now where we're, we've, 
at a we were up sixty eight percent in our manufacturing revenue in two thousand nineteen. That's an insane jump. <laughs> um, so you know we've got a, a perfect little bit of a couple of month lull where we're in right now, where we're trying to cross train people like crazy because in about seven weeks, uh, no, actually like four weeks now, we're wild again and. You've got to constantly, we've been through one big cycle of a ramp up, you know, adding uh, a ton of capacity. So now the chance to go back and kind of rationalize, all right, I know this is what we did to get by the first time, but how do we retool and constantly improve that process to make it simpler? Uh, because the stuff that we built is too complicated. <laughs> you can't build it in a complicated way. You have to really boil things down to the simplest thing possible. So, um, but, you know, without... Without the people's willing that that work there at Fiberbond, the willingness to change, the willingness to confront the uncertainty of that change, um, I think again would be Rocky Balboa sitting there. Around, well, and I think hand. too that's a lot of what locally, you know, all, all across Louisiana for that yeah. matter. That that's you you get cited with. Well, there's just not enough skilled labor that's a there, lie. and yeah. it's it's. Well, yeah, like it's, it's is it not true? How how does it come across? Is it an easy thing to I, say? I, 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 will, I want to quote Graham. I, I, I read uh -oh. I read a couple of your articles that you've written op ed pieces for the the Shreveport Times, and I believe um, I, I do believe this one has to do with the Wallet Hub. Oh yeah, when the Wallet, Wallet Hub ranked as like one eighty two out of one eighty two to live in. You you this struck me. Um, because it, it kind of flies in the face of a conventional wisdom around here. But you say the best asset we have in Shreveport and in North Louisiana is a very talented workforce. We have a terrific pipeline of young professional talent coming out of Louisiana Tech, and we have skilled tradesmen who have practical skills second to none. We, you know, about to throw somebody under the bus here. We've been hiring in Illinois for three months. We've gotten only a handful of folks to join us. In the past 60 days, we've hired 30 great people in North Louisiana, and we'll need multiples of that as 2018 progresses. Yep. Talk to any manufacturer around the country, and they struggle to find good, hardworking people. Our business hasn't yet. Like, that's true. You know, you wouldn't have written that in an op-ed piece if that weren't true. So, yeah, we did. I mean, I mean we, we ended up uh, adding roughly 240 people Uh Actually, 210 if you deduct the 30 I had there in that article uh, from that time. And I'm not saying I'm not going to lie to you and say oh, it's not without some struggles. But if you if if as an employee you're willing to to get creative with how you approach people, uh, and I think quite frankly you've got to have something not to sell your customers but to sell your potential employees. <laughs> I mean, well, you, without you, that, without some vision or, or culture there, I mean, yeah, I think it, it would be incredibly tough. But we, it takes some leadership to get people to take on new job responsibilities, even if they're, you know, if they're very comfortable in what they've been doing for 10 years to come in and say, Hey man, I want you to do something completely different. Yeah. That's, that's a sales job in itself. Well, yeah. And that's also a motivation thing. Yeah. It's like, if yeah. you have somebody who's like, look, I, I go in and I drill this whole 56,000 times a day. And then I go home and then I come back and then I do it the next day. And you're like, okay, now that you're not sucks. drilling holes yeah. anymore. Yeah. You're going to do this. There's some people who be like, thank God. And then there's some people who are like, no way. This is what I know to do. And I'm not doing that other thing because that seems I'm scared to change this thing that I already know. So those yeah. folks don't last with us. Yeah. That, that doesn't work. I mean, you've got to have somebody that's willing to uh, to get a little bit uncomfortable. But just because, you know, I I wish I knew the perfect way or any of us uh, knew the perfect way to, to do what we're doing. We don't. And so we're constantly evolving. And it's not, you know, uh, some major pivot, but 
a, a cross-functional team of folks, uh, you know, that are leading the effort, and then it's it's ideas from everybody, and you know, you say, well, this guy's been doing the same thing over and over. Why, you know, tell me why, and and could you do it better? Could you do it uh, simpler? Could you make that job more meaningful to him uh, or her? And then where do you go with that? And don't be afraid to try it. You know, it's good. you know, this is not a novel concept, uh, <laughs> uh, but you know. Just fail at something as quickly as you can. Make a mistake. Don't be afraid, and get get on past the learning curve. Yeah, so. yeah. Because every single th- like, I, like I don't know if we were recording when we talked about this, but like every single thing, you can sit down, you can make the plan, you can put the perspectives, you can yeah. run the numbers, and that lasts. You know, what I think you said, fifteen seconds. I it's think like, four. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's that's, but you have to just start. You know, there's. Got to be like a spark. A lot of like bootstrap kind of like just start. Like don't just don't throw everything into the, you know. No. But but yeah. start. Have a plan. Check that plan as you go. Take the parts that work. Keep those. And that necessity is the mother of that invention. And that's how you build. That's how you manufacture something different, but the same. Like repeatedly. Well, and there's that's how. You know, I think about, I mean, so we're still, we're family owned, 100%, and no outside equity partners. And I, I look at competitors of ours that have outside private equity uh, or are public. And I think about, man, that, that would, we would not have been able to do what we just did uh, in that scenario. I don't, I really don't think so. Uh, because, you know, we were making decisions for a, a long term sustainable future for us. And that's not going to, uh, it's going to look ugly in the short term sometimes in, in a way that, you know, if I had a, a, a board that was constantly chirping over my shoulder about every decision, I think uh, I would have been out long ago because, you know, some of these things we invested in certain customers in a way that I still believe pays a long-term benefit and is already doing it, paying a long-term benefit for us. But that's a four-year decision. That's not a four-month decision. Well, God bless a four-day decision. Yeah, and I think so. that you said this uh, maybe last week, but it was there's um, a, a certain amount of every decision is like this could this could topple the whole tower, but we still have to make the decision. And if it starts to go, then we have to figure out how to prop it back up. But you can't not make that. You can sit there and it'll just fall fall down. But yeah, you can't wring your hands uh, while, while you're paralyzed waiting to make right. a decision on that. But yeah. we just didn't have the time. I yeah. mean, it, it, it would not have worked. Well, you, you've attributed during this conversation a lot of FiberBond success. And obviously your dad believes that, that, that the people are making the products and the products are, are making FiberBond. And so it, I downloaded Hillbilly Elegy. Yeah, what do you think? I, I've, I've listened to most of it, and it's, <laughs> it's a fantastic read or a fantastic listen. And uh, there are a lot of parallels between that Kentucky, Ohio region that he speaks about, that he writes about, and um, and our region of the country, our our little pocket of the world. In fact, there are places where you're told that it, you can't. It, yeah. I mean, ex- you know, it. I don't know. There are a lot of parts of the country that are just like that. He, you know, Appalachia gets that bad rap. The Rust Belt gets that bad rap. But obviously, up here in a kind of a post-industrialist North Louisiana, post-manufacturing North Louisiana, we're we're in that same boat. So one, one thing that kind of struck me when in the, one of the earlier chapters was um, how Armco in, in, uh, in what's the name of the town in Ohio? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, Middle, Middleville, Middleton, Pennsylvania, yeah, Middleton, right. Ohio. Armco built the town, right? 
but they had excellent labor relations all the way through the 70s, like, you know, in, in, into its decline. Kawasaki had to buy it. But, but you guys have maintained the same level of, of relations among your employees. I mean, you had guys watch it burn down that are still there, right? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, and you just mentioned to Thomas about how difficult it would be to, how, how many decisions that if, you, if your company were public and if you were governed by a board, how, how difficult some of those decisions would be or impossible? Yeah, I mean, it, it, there are plenty of hard decisions that we've had to make. I mean, yeah. that, that a lot of them are not particularly fun. We would have made them much quicker. We would have absolutely tried to maximize the short-term horizon mm-hmm. um, and and found ourselves flat-footed when, when the business bounced back. And so, uh, you know, I think, you know, look, I'd, I'd be the first to say we're not perfect. Uh, I wish I wish we're constantly trying to get better at what we do and how we interact with uh with the folks that have trusted us with their mm-hmm. careers there. Um, and, and then they're as much invested in the business as we are. So, you know, I, I think it's, um, for me, it's a function of, uh, they've got to trust where we're going. I mean, people, uh, there's a, a guy that I'm close with, who's a manufacturing director who, you know, he was in the kind of this initial core group that uh, actually went to Swanee mm-hmm. uh, in early 2014 to kind of just plot out, you know, come up with the list that we were going to, uh, that was going to be obsolete in four seconds or less. But, you know, he's like, this, is, you know, this sounds good, never going to happen. And, you know, it's, uh, it has happened. And so people have bought into it and, and believe that, you know, we're not, um, we're not sitting here trying to, to make a living by screwing people over. Yeah, just, make just the quick buck yeah. and sell. Yeah. So, I mean, right. you get, I get the feeling when I listen to the, uh, I guess that particular chapter is that, that, that Armco built a loyalty in the town and among yeah. all of its employees and this is that, you know, old 1950s, post-war 1950s, sure. 1960s, don't buy a Japanese car, that kind of, but, the, but there was a loyalty among those employees and, and there was some type of kinship that kept that, that idea of an industrialist society going. And then of course, all their kids were told they had to go to college and that they couldn't, they couldn't work in the factory. What else did you get out of Hillbilly Elegy? Uh, you know, I think it's interesting. I mean, that book, um, certainly even when it was published, you know, in, in yeah. 2016 and then mm-hmm kind of the overall effect or the, the parallels with the, with the election that occurred mm-hmm. that year. Um, you know, for me, just, you know, somebody like J.D. Vance, I mean, what he, what he had to uh, climb out of. I mean, the, the fractured family, uh, you know, a mother who was challenged to find worth uh, kind of in herself, and it certainly impacted her relationships with, with men. And Basically raised his by his grandparents. Yeah. Um, I mean, how somebody like that can, you know, can through talent and through just kind of grit, I guess, come out of, of that circumstance and, uh, you know, Yale law school and, and highly successful venture capitalist and, uh, but remain grounded in kind of where it came from. It's not apologetic about it. Right. I mean, for him, that's, that's, that's a, it's a defining characteristic. It's not something to be ashamed of. And so, um, yeah, I think, you know, think about, about here. I mean, there are, there are those of uh, those around us who are ashamed of, of, of where we came from. I mean, I came mm-hmm. from a tiny town of 300 people in North Louisiana. I think that's great. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to apologize to anybody about that. And because, it, you know, it, it forms you in a way that, uh, that I, I think is, is, can be very good. I mean, it can easily just be, you know, it just easily be bad, but, um, you know, the sense of, uh, I guess not apologizing yet where it came from there. So 
when I think too, we live in this culture of, you know, oh, every day I go to the beach and I have this kind of life and blah, blah, blah. It's like, that's, that's all, that's not true. That's just a sort of like self-inflated like marketing of like, look how good I got it over here. And then really like, you turned on Facebook lately. I yeah, mean, yeah, the, I the mean, sense of. Uh, but but also for for somebody <laughs> who for somebody who comes from a town of three hundred people, it's like those people know that you don't work at the beach every day. It's like you can do that when you live, uh, you know, when your when your group is is separated by by technology by your phone. Like, oh, this is where I. These are my friends. It's like those people aren't going to bail you out of jail, like. You know, you're not ever going to say on Facebook that you went to jail either. But I'm saying, <laughs> like, you know, there, there's this, I think that makes it, like, the people that, there's a group of people that, like, are great welders, are gr- like that. But there's not a, there's not like a cool, it doesn't look cool. It's like, no, it doesn't look cool, but it pays great. You can have, you can do a lot of, yeah. you know, a lot of things and have a great career doing something that's not, uh, being a YouTuber, yeah, I mean, you know, they, or, or something like that. Like being on, if you're not on TV, doesn't matter. You can still go to uh, work and have a great life. I think the entire country, not just our region, but I think our entire country is is stuck in this like it, it, the very end of this quote, which is now we're at the nth degree of the quote. But one of the it was a John Adams or John Quincy Adams quote or something that was like, "I study war so my my sons can study uh, math and science, and I want them to study math and science so my grandsons and can study um, art and literature." You know, like first first we have to get the redcoats out of here, yeah, <laughs> or whatever, and, and then then we can go on to the the next thing and build stuff and build infrastructure, and then we can we can sing and dance. And now we're we're on Facebook, yeah, and Instagram. And at the beach every day. That's where Singing I spend my time. Yeah. But one thing, the, the J.D. Vance book that, that I, there's this idealism that, that somehow America has always just been perfect. But it was really yeah, no. it, this idea of this American dream really only existed from like 45 to 68 or something, right? Like all these folks had it real hard. Like every, no uh, you know, the, you know. The 1800s were every book that I read or any documentary that I watch about the, any, it, it was not an easy time. The, ni- the early 1900s weren't pleasant. The Depression was horrible. And then there was this war, and then the, the post-war boom of 45 to 65, Detroit, the industrial economy that was created, the middle class the middle that class was dream, yeah. created then, was not, it didn't always exist. Most of these folks were like J.D. Vance's... Um, Ancestors in Kentucky. It was a hard, poor life. And they went to the Rust Belt, what we call it the Rust Belt now, but back then it was the boom towns of Ohio, Pennsylvania, to um, to weld and to make steel and to build stuff. And then they told their kids, you don't want to do this. You don't want to work in the coal mines. You need to, you know, you need to go to college. and Learn your way out of it. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. so now, uh, now we have what we have. But but one thing that I also heard in the book was the difficulty in finding a good workforce. And then in, in your articles, you say something completely different. Do you think that's something country folk versus city folk? Do you think there's just something about Louisiana? or do, What, what yeah, do you attribute um, that to? So I, I think there's some specific things that we've got going on here that are, that are unique. Um, we've got a, a legacy oil and gas kind of services infrastructure um, from a business standpoint where you've got good electricians and good welders. They just mm-hmm. typically, you know, 
10 years ago, they went offshore. Mm-hmm. Um, today they're in West Texas. They're still coming back here to, you know, on the yeah. weekends or every other weekend, whatever it is. Um, so that's a unique kind of thing going on here, mm-hmm. I think. But um, I think you've just got to, you have to be willing to go out and, and convince people why they should be with, with your company. Yeah. Um, you know, if I had this conversation, I've had it a couple of times over the past couple of weeks, you know, I've always says I, we're here to, you know, the, the old business school definition of, you know, uh, maximize shareholder value constantly. Uh, that gets bastardized into a lot of bad behavior, right? Uh, I, I agree. Things that I don't think are in any way mm-hmm. good. Um, so, you know, yes, you got to be profitable long term to, to have a sustainable business. But if everything you're doing is trying to, to yeah, another penny out. I don't know. That just seems to me a very shallow, shallow goal. That was, I mean, that's just not that interesting. If you're trying to build something in a way that, you know, employs people in a meaningful way, you know, there's a dignity to work if you do it right. Um, it's not an indignity. And if that's what you're trying to build, it, it build it for the people around you because, you know, in Menden, Louisiana, uh, there's not a lot of other alternatives. You know, you go draw a 60 mile radius or, uh, around Minden. I mean, you'll find nine or 10 towns that used to, uh, that 20 years ago had forest products mills in them that are gone. Um, and that was the big, that was the big employment uh, in the area that oil and gas. So yeah, if, again, if you, if you're just sitting here with a, a motivation for me, uh, it's, I just don't think it's going to work. So it's, uh, it's much more about, uh, I mean, I, for me, I, I get the, the satisfaction of what I do comes when, uh, you know, the guy who is from Shreveport, who's a painter, uh, and he's having kids and he, can, he has a chance to, to educate them. He's got a chance to provide for them, right? That's, I think that's meaningful. But, um, you know, if, I, if it was just how do I pay him as little as possible and don't give him benefits and, and try to, uh, I want him just on the, you're absolutely riding the edge of leaving constantly. That's, that's, that's just not... It's not a fun thing to build. It's a you know, it's a crappy way to die. <laughs> so, well, um, I, I know we're kind of coming up on time here. So I, I wanted to bring this back to your back to the op eds that you wrote, and um, and I, you know, I think what you've done at Fiberbond is a testament to the fact that that you actually you know how to pivot when you have to, make a turnaround when you have to, cut where it hurts. Uh, motivate people, lead people in the, in into a direction into the unknown to some degree, but at seemingly come out on the other side doing all right for yourself, and and then that just builds confidence and builds trust in in your team. So, um, in in reading your article, and I think a lot of this is pulled from the Wallet Hub op-ed, but and I think this was written in uh, 2018, but in less than eight years, an estimated 8,800 of our fellow residents have left the city. Yep. And they're not all moving to Bossier. Some are leaving Louisiana for good. Uh, many are victims of crime. They're trapped in a, a cycle of poverty, and they struggle to find a decent job. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the airport. You mentioned infrastructure. <laughs> uh, and I know you've gotten a lot about the feral cats. <laughs> but, you know, if, if not to second-guess jobs or anything like that, but if, if you were to make some suggestions... If you were to make some things that didn't cost a billion dollars and that don't involve GM moving back to town, so it, yeah, right, it's not going to happen. So, 
what what are your ideas? Do you have any ideas? Yeah, so I think um, I'll say this. The idea of a GM, I mean, GM was 2,000 jobs, AT&T was 7,500 jobs. You can go down the list and down the list and down the list. They're gone. Um, so how do you rebuild? And I mean, I, rightly or wrongly, I look at it very much as the same challenge that we've had uh, at Fiberbond, where all right, this is what we've got. We got to we, we got to change. How do you how do you use what you have mm-hmm. in order to to have some control uh, over the over your future? And how, what do you, how do you grow? Uh, because I mean, it looks like to me, you know, the numbers that came out not long ago with like three thousand jobs uh, since the Wallet Hub article that are gone out of Shreveport out of the MSA. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, our trajectory is not changing, and so. I mean, I look at it and say, all right, between, and we may have had this conversation in Minden, I can count on less than uh, two hands of fingers here the number of companies locally owned, locally controlled, that employ 200 people or more uh, that are making something or distributing something. Um, Like, in our case, over 90% of our revenue comes from out of state. So we're taking out-of-state dollars. They're coming here. They're multiplying however many times, and it's, it's having an impact. We're not just trading dollars internally. Um, each of those companies has chosen to be here. You know, Ivan Smith Furniture's chosen to still be located in Shreveport. Uh, Metro Aviation, Red Ball Oxygen, Morrison Dixon, you can go down the list, uh, McElroy Metal. So, you know, we, it's very easy, think of it from an economic development standpoint, to say, all right, we, knew, we need to have uh, XYZ Foundation doing economic development. What does that really mean? Mm-hmm. It's not, um, you know, I, I, I think those of us that are that are still really invested in this area, and there's some family offices that are really invested in this area still. Um, I think those folks have to pull together in order to to say, you know, all right, we're going to go and there's a way to do it. Uh, we're going to come up with a way to go recruit businesses to this area. No different than each of us would have to go sell what we do to a customer, um, but. It's going to take a lot of hustle. It's going to take a lot of leg work, leg work, and it's going to take a couple of partnerships with with entities in this area that uh, that have got a stake in that. So it's it's got to be more private driven, I think, in that sense. The guy, you know, um, city of Shreveport, the city of Bozier, they're not going to be successful trying to do this individually. Um, you have the, I've got a friend who's a retired Barstow general who. He talks about, you know, the biggest divide in the country is between Shreveport and Bozeman. And then maybe that's true, but uh, I would tell you, I mean, I make that drive every day. Uh, I could care less what city I'm in. If I'm uh, Google coming here from out of town, I could care less about the historical dynamics of Shreveport versus Bozier because everybody crosses that river. Everybody's on the, we're all in the same place, whether you think we're not or, <laughs> or we agree. Yeah, we need to work not. together as opposed yeah, to this and, segregation. Well, of, and of the like competition, and, there, and there's some, some kind of old historical reasons for the competition, mm-hmm. but, you know, go back to Barksdale. I mean, Barksdale was, uh, the property for Barksdale was acquired uh, in a bond issue from Shreveport. Um, and, you know, there's always, there needs to be a natural dynamic, uh, to work across the river and, you know, further east in the hinterlands where I come from. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if I go back to the, the same list of businesses, McElroy Metal, live in Shreveport, work in Bossier. Uh Ivan Smith, and he lives here and, and goes all over. Uh, I live in Shreveport, I work in Minden. Um, 
what businesses are these? I mean, if, if these private enterprises or family uh, family businesses, family offices go out and recruit, what do they recruit? What did, what works here? What benefits what we already have? What works yeah, so in concert with what we there's have? There's been some early work done, and there's uh, I think there'll be an announcement that comes up pretty soon around a, a concept that, that I think will work. Um, we've got cheap energy. Right, that translates very well to steel, uh, fabrication, and manufacturing. Um, you know, you could put a business development person in Illinois and in in Canada, and and generate a lot of opportunities. We've got a, a supplier of ours, a company called EI Williams, based in Ontario, moving to Sarepta, Louisiana. Not, and they're not a, a major supplier of ours. We have not we've not done a lot of work with them, but they're trying to come to get in the Gulf Coast area. You know. Came to Shreveport, looked at Shreveport and Bossier, and they chose Sarepta of all places. But uh, they're opening a U.S. presence, and, and this is a great area to be servicing the Gulf Coast without having the same labor intensity. When uh, because you know, people ask me all the time, oh, you got not uh, they they demand we have to locate in Houston, all this stuff. It's like I, I have no continuity. Uh, we we would absolutely the transient workforce in Houston guys will leave jobs for a dime. You know, it, there's no stability, there's no loyalty uh, that I've seen anyway. So, you know, we've got some very kind of fundamental characteristics and, and, and virtues here that I think translate perfectly to manufacturing. Um, you know, there are other industries that, that we don't translate so well for, but, you know, you've got to, again, build around what we have. And that's, it was still some legacy family-owned manufacturing firms that are here. Um, it's a medical school that's here. That's a major, major employer. Uh, it's an Air Force base that, you know, <laughs> thankfully is still going. Uh, despite, I had a friend who sent me, uh, this a former mayor of Bossier, Don Jones. He sent me the, uh, it's a 1964 conversation between LBJ and Russell Long. Right, I don't know if it's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, he, and he mentions Barso. Well, I've closed these others. I don't know why that one's still, I mean, thank God it's still here. Yeah. Um, his feelings were hurt. Yeah, his feelings were hurt. Yeah. yeah. Those people treated me like a thief. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. But that's the, the, if you have someone come here and go, yeah, we can go to Sarepta and we can do what we're going to do there. And we've got the ability to pull in, you know, this workforce. We're going to bring this work. Like, I think. I don't understand why that doesn't work. I also it absolutely works. I don't understand. There's people are coming to Shreveport on the weekend to shop, and I mean, yeah. Uh, but I also I don't understand the the logistics, like the moving of stuff. You guys do a lot of moving stuff. Yeah, yeah. Ivan sure. Smith does a lot of moving of stuff. Yeah. Morton Dixon moving. They're moving. Everybody's moving stuff. And like I I saw um, a guy do a he had been uh driving a truck for a year and a half and he did this sort of like heat map of like here's where i went the last year and a half and it's like atlanta every you know and there's not a lot between like he's coming to shreveport he's going to dallas but it's like little rock like all around us and it's like we can get okay the reason we're here is because the river and we open that thing up Shreveport like it's that becomes a way to move things we're here and I don't understand I don't understand why we're not doing that and maybe I'm deluded and we are doing it and I just don't see it no I don't, I don't think we, we're doing it we've right. got a train we've got a truck we've got a plane we've got a great we've port got, we've got we've everything got great infrastructure yeah um and if we, we just don't have much of a plan right <laughs> it's that's the thing like and, and you know I I 
the whole reason that sort of any of this started and I started sort of becoming interested in talking about this more and talking to Josh about it and, and this whole thing started was a, a conversation that I had with Rocky Rocket where where we talked about like where, where's the like we're sort of on the backs of where we were years before because of these guys what's the new plan and there's there's some new plans you know there's there's studies have been done and plans have been set up but I don't know so, where they are. Uh, I don't know. So I get back to what we talked about earlier. All those studies yeah. were well past our four seconds. Right, right. So, you know, I think you've got to have a group of people that come together and put some risk in and take on some risk because, you know, it's not going to happen without somebody having a little bit of courage. And it's not going to be a long bureaucratic process. It's going to be somebody who has to hustle. Right. And it's doable. Uh, but you're not going to go get a 2,000-person GM opportunity unless you're getting a lot of 50 person manufacturing firms coming in and you know 25 to 100 people at a time because right. you know you look at so there's an entity um, things called One East Kentucky an economic development entity and the JD Vance part of the world these guys have been tremendously successful on a $400,000 budget they're going out and they're hustling you know getting opportunities into a pretty rough part you know a, a part of the country that looks a lot like our area that's not had a lot of success historically but you know, when those per people come here, they've got to find people that, that you know, like myself, that have, that believe in being here. Yeah. And if you don't, you know, that's that we talk about uh, that quite a bit here, too. It's like uh, just have pride in, in being here. And if you, you know, like if you don't want to be here, that's don't fine. Sugarcoat it. I mean, it's not perfect. But, no, you know. no, no place is, though. Like, yeah, no, that's I, right. I've lived lots of places and that everybody's <laughs> like, oh, that's the greatest place in America. It's like you spent two days there. Like, <laughs> yeah. by the way, yeah. you can't drive anywhere there anymore. Yeah. Like yeah. you're gonna sit you in your on car. Vacation. Like yeah, you went somewhere you're on drinking vacation. every day. You, you're out to eat every night. Right. Like, you, I you, talked to a guy this morning. He just moved from Seattle to uh, to San Francisco. Three hours in a car for his commute. Ridiculous yeah. price. I mean, it's like so. Why would instead of consolidating in, in Silicon Valley, why didn't a company you know you got a million square feet of uh, vacant real uh, space here in downtown Shreveport? I mean. Somebody at some point could figure out, show up, and you can buy housing really cheap. Yeah, it's a pretty you good could be, you life. could yeah. you could come in and but again, turn the you got to have some underlying momentum that's already going. Yeah. Right? Yeah. nobody's going to go take that risk on their own. Yeah. Well, in in the interest of time, uh, I'll I'll quote a little bit more here for from one of your op eds. Um, last year, I posed this question to a friend who is very involved in the community. Name the Shreveport institutions that are stronger today than when I moved here in two thousand four. Sadly, we came up with two, the Norton Art Gallery, whose prominence has risen with an outstanding community event program, and the YMCA. Regionally, we could add Bipsy and Barksdale. Um, we could probably add the port. Um, so now, uh, in 2020, I asked you kind of the same question um, that you posed to your friend some time ago. What's doing well here in town? What are you proud of? What, what could you, yeah. if you're the guy, like if you, if you could hand the keys to your son, who's 26 and he had his MBA and said, I'm walking away, yeah. but I'm going to be an economic development engine for Northwest Louisiana. What do you go sell? What do you go pitch? I think you've got a big opportunity with BRF. Um, now, in, in, in full disclosure, I just joined the board of the BRF. So, uh, but I joined because I believe in what they're doing. I'm sorry, what is disclosure? But uh, it's not <laughs> that's a concept lost. Um, so the BRF stood up, in the end, to to keep the med school here and mm -hmm. keep the hospital here, and you know that's a such a heated uh, little exchange going on in in the 
the court system. But, uh, I mean, I know the guys over there, and I, and I believe in what they did. Uh, I also think they've done a, they've got a, uh, so the BRF is one of two entities locally that has an economic development tax millage. Uh, the port is the other. And uh, so I think what the EAP is, the Entrepreneurial Accelerator Program is doing through the BRF is terrific. We, yeah, we had Julie Gilly and Nick yeah. Oliver in here. We just released that podcast. They've today. got a lot of smart people yeah, they and do. they're, they're, they're doing things that I think long-term will pay off for our region. Um, so, you know, certainly upon selling the hospital, the BRF is stronger than it was before. Uh, and I think they, they serve the community, a, a terrific, the community, a terrific service. Um, I would add them to the list now for okay. sure. Um, from there, I'm open to suggestions, but I'm not okay. coming up with any others. But if you're, if you're out selling our community and you say, you guys got to come to Shreveport, I got to, you're, you're a great manufacturing outfit. You need to expand to the tune of 300. Um, we could use you, you know, fiber bond could use you. Um, come, come check this out. Like, and you're dealing with a CEO and the COO and they fly into town and they, they come to our airport <laughs> Which has gotten a little better, I'll yeah, say. There are yeah, no more okay. feral cats. It seems to have, you know, cleaned up. They've, I think they've hung uh, some local artwork up. Yeah, the got yeah. a new little security entrance there, which Looks is good. Uh, an improvement. So, uh, any other improvements to the airport that you Not could that do I'm for not. under fifty grand? Uh, yeah, look, I mean, that, you could you could do a lot for under fifty grand. That would help in Shreveport. Uh, okay, you know whether that's. Uh, Look, I, so you got to understand my my pet peeve in life is seeing a construction project that sits there half a, not not even attended just you know, oh, the, had the one orange of the, cones the, the orange the, cones yeah, yeah. you, you mentioned that which, in which, well, which, yeah. which means stay as far away as possible especially if you're trying to work on it um, <laughs> so yeah, there there are a lot of things that um, we don't do ourselves a favor I mean, get off at Piermont off I forty nine and you'll see barricades that have been sitting there for over five years because. About once every two years, we have an ice day where you can't get on the interstate. You know, just little things about taking pride in what you, how you look. Um, you know, it's it's like all right, if you go to our manufacturing facility, the place that needs to be clean is the is the restroom because if you have dirty restrooms, you got problems. Um, same's true of a city. You just look around and see signs of, of not neglect, but like um, yeah, neglect, idle work that is abandoned and and left as an eyesore for other people. It's just taking pride in the little details, right? You know, the old saying, take care of the details and the big things take care of themselves. Uh, we lack that tremendously. Well, good deal. What, um, it's a depressing note to end it, on. It, it, no, we're not going to end on that. That's why we're not going to end on that. You're, you're a leader. You're, you're, a, you're, you're a CEO or you're a CEO. Is that yeah. the title? Yeah. Of, of, a, of a company that's doing... Uh, very well for itself, and and that wasn't a guarantee when you inherited this thing. That is correct. And I wanted to make sure we we went into that. But do you have any solutions for those problems? Do you have any ideas to take care of the details so the rest takes care of themselves? Like how do you imbue a population or a citizenry with a sense of pride in itself? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you you have to um, you got to you get you identify and build upon your successes. So I mean, take um, you know take the current mayor. I mean, he's got a stiff challenge ahead of him there to. Uh, to to promote a positive message, um, I think you've got it. We've got to uh, certainly of our of our from a government standpoint, we have to expect a little more um, around you know, just basically how we how we administer city business. Um, I think we've got to promote a more regional approach. Mm -hmm. You know, you you can't. Um, I mean, I, I, one of the first things I would do. Not that this will ever happen anytime soon, but take, it should be the Shreveport Bossier Regional Airport. 
um, you know, that's that's where everybody from this area flies into. And you've got uh, a RASA uh, fee that is Bozier's helping pay for the airport anyway. Mm -hmm. um, there are, I, th I think we have to kind of recraft an identity there. And, um, you know, there, it, it's all too easy to be the forgotten part of the state. And, you know, you look at the, the recent legislative assignments uh, for committees, and we're not getting uh, any great, uh, I would say, committee assignments coming out of Baton Rouge. We're, we're our own part of the world up here. I, and, yeah, you know, I unfortunately agree with that. So if we're not willing to go really hard, work hard to save ourselves, nobody else is coming in to do it for us. So, you know, again, I, that's why I get back to those of us who have chosen to be here uh, and are working hard to stay here. Um, ought to be all on the same page. So, well, thank you so much for your time, and uh, and thank you for employing 675 people in North Louisiana, skilled labor jobs, and um, and thanks for flying people to town and trying to encourage <laughs> them to locate in Sarepta. So, thank you so much, Graham. We really appreciate you yeah, taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for being here.